You can contribute to the Historian's Podcast by visiting the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. My name is James Kaplan. I'm a lawyer and a walking tour historian. And I'm going to talk today about Jimmy McManus, who was the last great Tammany Hall district leader in New York City, in my opinion. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan. Jim has the story of the final years of the Tammany Hall political machine in New York City. Jim Kaplan's reporting the story in part from memory in that he was involved in politics as a young man in Manhattan. Our focus is on another Jim, Jim McManus. Who was Jim McManus in New York City political history? In the Hell's Kitchen area, James McManus's great-granduncle, Thomas McManus, had essentially taken over the district leadership uh, from the famous George Washington Plunkett in the 1890s. And the McManus family was, in essence, a dynasty that remained in in the Hell's Kitchen area actually up until two or three years ago for 112 years. But uh, Jimmy McManus was uh, uh, became the district leader in 1961, when his, uh, which he took over from his father Eugene McManus, uh, who'd been the who'd taken the who'd been the district leader since 1942. Uh, when uh, he took over, when his father died, he was an active aide to his father, and uh, uh, when he his father uh, died. Tammany Hall was really on the skids, if you will. Uh, Eugene McManus was a close ally of Carmine DiSapio, and uh, uh, DiSapio's candidate uh, 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 for for mayor, uh, Abe Beam in 1965, and I believe uh, uh, Arthur Levitt in 1961, had been defeated by a uh, by Mayor Robert Wagner who was a reform who had initially been elected with the base on the basis of uh, the Sapio support as along with Averill Harriman in 1954. But Wagner essentially turned on his former colleagues uh, and ran with the reform movement. And that was a disastrous defeat for Tammany Hall and the Tammany so-called Tammany clubs throughout the city. So when mm-hmm. Jimmy McManus took over, Things were not looking good for Tammany and particularly for his family's club, the McManus Democratic Club. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about the neighborhood where the McManuses lived. Uh, it's called Hell's Kitchen. That's a hell of a name. Historically, was considered one of the worst Irish slums in the city, starting from the 1850s when... Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt ran the New York Central Railroad up the west side of Manhattan. It was a very poor immigrant area where Irish and German immigrants lived in in, in tenements. And therefore, Tammany Hall, which in a sense catered to the immigrants, would be quite strong there. Now, ironically, Francis Perkins, who was really the architect of Social Security and the New Deal programs, uh, came out of Hell's Kitchen in the sense that she was a social worker there, vigorously opposed to Hammony Hall. When she met Thomas J. McManus trying to help a client in 1910, 
And as a result of that relationship, McManus introduced her to the Tammany leadership, including uh, the Tammany uh, uh, boss, Charles Francis Murphy, and his protege, Al Smith. So as a result of that, Francis Perkins became Al Smith's key social welfare policy uh, advisor. And, and she later, when Smith lost for the presidency in 1928 uh, to Herbert Hoover, uh, his handpicked successor was Franklin Roosevelt. And mm-hmm. Roosevelt appointed Miss Perkins to be the head of the New York State Labor Department and later brought her to Washington in 1932 to be the Secretary of Labor, which she was for the entire Roosevelt administration. We did a podcast on uh, Frances Perkins, who I consider to be one of the most important women of the 20th century. And ironically, she came out of the house kitchen, firstly with, uh, with uh, uh, Thomas J. McManus. I always like to focus a little bit on the names. You, you had tell one story about why that neighborhood was called Hell's Kitchen specifically. Yeah, uh, supposedly by legend, there was a policeman walking, uh, walking uh, the beat there on a very hot day in, in, the, in the pavements. And the, the younger policeman, or chief policeman, the younger policeman said, this place is hotter than hell. And the older one said, yeah, it's hell's kitchen. <laughs> I don't know why, but I mean, there were very different theories as to why the name stuck. But to most people there, and to most people today, the area is known as Hell's Kitchen, even though that's never been an official name. At one point, the real estate men tried to rename it Clinton on the, the idea that it would spiff up the neighborhood and, uh, after DeWitt Clinton, who apparently lived there. But I think to uh, most people in the area, particularly in the, in the slum days, it was known as Hell's Kitchen. I would say today, even in its upscale days, people call it Hell's Kitchen. So that's sort of uh, the weird. story of Hell's Kitchen. The McManuses were always associated as the political overlords, if you will, uh, of Hell's Kitchen. Jimmy McManus was uh, 26 years old, a contemporary, said, Jim, you're too young to take this over. This, we're, we're, these are not going to be good times for us. Uh, you know, the reform movement was sweeping through Manhattan. The city government under the mayor, Wagner, and then, of course, later John Lindsay, who came in in 1965, is not going to do anything for us. And, uh, you know, it's going to be very difficult for this club to survive. And I would think most people would have thought that, like many, if not most of the Tammany clubs in New York City, the club would go, soon go out of business. Jimmy was uh, controlled the uh, election district captains who elected the district leader. He, he, he told the other people, well, I, I control them. If you've got four aces, you don't give up, and I'm going to run the club. That was a rather... Mm-hmm. Uh, brave for a young man at that time. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, particularly after John Lindsay uh, was elected in 1965 over the uh, organization Democrat Abe Beam from Brooklyn, uh, who'll come back, uh, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, they, they were in for tough times. Of course, the Tammany organizations always provided social benefits to people, or at least the poor, You know, they would hold a party every uh, six months. Uh, They would uh, try to help people out, even if they couldn't through the city government. Maybe they could get them a job through a friendly uh, uh, businessman. So they were kind of still a a social welfare organization, but one that was not uh, 
able to produce mm-hmm. what it what it had in the years, the many years that Tammany was in power. Uh, what happened was, the Sapio, who was in a sense an advisor to Young Jim, said that the Democratic, the Reform Movement will split. Uh, you watch, the Democratic Party will split. And in fact, in 1968, that happened. Most of the regular Democrats, of course, supported Lyndon Johnson, who won a landslide in 1964. Uh, Lindsay, in many ways, was allied with the Reform Democrats. Uh, there became an issue over the war in Vietnam. The Many uh, younger people, I guess like myself at the time, were very unhappy with the Johnson policies of sending people our age over to Vietnam to fight uh, against the uh, fight for the South Vietnamese. And uh, things became worse and worse. Uh, where I was at school, uh, Reverend William Sloan Coffin, who was the chaplain at Yale, for example, urged people to turn in their draft cards. So the, the anti-war movement, particularly among students, became quite strong. And pretty soon that was reflected in a challenge to Lyndon Johnson for Eugene McCarthy. Now, Eugene McCarthy had numerous student volunteers. There was a group here in Manhattan on the west side uh, uh, headed by uh, people like Dick Morris, Dick Godfrey, Jerry Nadler, Joe Mercurio, and others, uh, Richard Dresner, that were uh, uh, active political, active, very active politically in political campaigns for anti-war candidates. Ted Weiss, the congressman, was one of them. Uh, later, Bella Abzug. But the, uh, 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 and they were very well organized. They had very, very experienced in canvassing and in uh, uh, political activity. And even though they were less than 21 in many cases when they started and couldn't vote, they began to have significant power because of their organizational ability. In a way, they were organized like the old as, as did uh, John Kelly's machine. So the, they were claimed to be known as the West Side Kids. They were, when I got to uh, uh, New Hampshire for Eugene McCarthy, they were kind of the shock troops of the organization. They were the guys who, could, who were running the campaign because they knew what to do. After that, in uh, 1972, they were active on behalf of George McGovern. And I was with them at this point. Uh, uh, so in the McGovern campaign, uh, it was really run by Dick Morris and, and perhaps Jerry Nadler and uh, the uh, here in Manhattan anyway. Uh, they wanted to run their own candidates. They wanted to run people who were in their early 20s, like uh, Gottfried was 23. Jerry Nadler, I think, was 23. He was a, uh, a manager for an OTB station. Gottfried was at Columbia Law School. And the older people in the reform movement said, well, you guys are kids. You're not ready to run for public or for major offices. You're not going to, uh, uh, you know, we have candidates who are much more able than you or much more experienced. And you don't really expect to run for the state assembly, for example. So the kids were not happy about this. And somebody suggested that they might meet with Jimmy McManus. Now, the McManus Club would not have had the power to offset or to overcome the reform movement, which was uh, sweeping through it, swept through Manhattan. It was, in many ways, a vestige of the last of the Tammany Hall, the only, perhaps, Tammany Hall Club. 
So they formed kind of a, you might say, a semi-secret alliance was formed between Jimmy McManus, who was roughly their age, a little older, and uh, the West Side Kids, headed by Dick Morris, by Dick Gottfried, and uh, uh, by uh, Jerry Nadler, and uh, others. So uh, uh, it was kind of, you could look at it as an unholy alliance between the extreme left and the extreme right. Uh, they, they didn't particularly advertise that, but uh, it mm -hmm. became clear as the McGovern campaign uh, developed uh, that uh, uh, McManus said that they could use his club in the middle of Hell's Kitchen, which was not a great source of uh, uh, support for George McGovern and the anti-war movement, uh, and they would try to uh, uh, build a campaign that would be not only support McGovern, but also uh, uh, Dick Gottfried and Jerry Nadler as the candidates. So even though uh, individually, I don't think either of these groups would have had the power to overcome the more established reform uh, Democrats, many of whom going back to Adlai Stevenson and Eleanor Roosevelt, together they could put a good front against the reform forces arrayed against them. Now what happened was uh, Dick Morris, who was uh, would begin to funnel McGovern volunteers from throughout the city. I was up at Columbia University at the time into to work every night at the McManus Midtown Democratic Club on 48th Street. So you had these long-haired radicals, whatevers, uh, working side by side <laughs> with longshoremen and the old line uh, Tammany Hall people in Hell's Kitchen, which was quite an interesting mix. And I, I think uh, they both they both way. So in any event, ultimately, uh, Gottfried and 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 Nadler prevailed. Gottfried was the youngest assemblyman in the in the in the, in the New York State Senate, and uh, 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 today he's still in the I'm sorry New York State Assembly. Today he's still in the Assembly, and he's he's one of the oldest. He's been serving there for 50 years. Jerry Nadler, as you know, went on to be congressman and later a leader in the, uh, the, the Judiciary Committee and the attempts to impeach Trump, an ally earlier of Bill Clinton. Uh, so they had quite an important career. And it all started, in my opinion, with this, you would say, unholy alliance between Jimmy McManus and, uh, and uh, the West Side Kid. What happened was that as a result of this alliance, uh, uh, Jimmy McManus, uh, until he uh, uh, resigned and he recently died, uh, held the district leadership in Hell's Kitchen for 54 years. You know, you know with Dick Gottfried certainly was the club's candidate for all, for most of that period uh, mm. until most recently when actually uh, he he uh, uh, joined his his opponents in the Hell's Kitchen Democrats, which was but that was that's very recently. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, um, uh, uh, so that, that was the story. As a result of this, McManus's political position became stronger because here was a guy who was known could work with the reformers and, uh, you know, had a certain uh, respect. So, uh, uh, the threat that the McManus club would be knocked out by the reformers lessened. What, what what was going on in in Hell's Kitchen in terms of I don't know what quality of life and and uh, making a living 
that uh, McManus uh, worked to, to change that and, and, and your view made things better. Oh, definitely. In the, in the uh, early 70s, New York City was on the skids, and particularly with the fiscal crisis, with uh, Richard Nixon, uh, later Gerald Ford said drop dead. John Lindsay's mayoralty unfortunately failed. Uh, he had, people had high hopes. I remember my father once told me he'll be president, but uh, uh, he, he was not able to keep the middle class backing that he had. His, uh, his promise of more efficient government fell flat. There were numerous strikes. Uh, they couldn't uh, pick up the, the snow in the, uh, clean up snow in, in Queens. And there were very, even worse, uh, racial divisions between blacks and whites and rich and poor. Uh, uh, in fact, on the east side, there were many large buildings were built, many, and it began to push out the lower middle class people who lived in, the, uh, you know, in what had been the, the, the tenements. And people were afraid that was going to happen on the west side in Hell's Kitchen. Now, the three great areas of the economy in Hell's Kitchen in Jimmy McManus's uh, father's time <coughs> were the docks, uh, which with longshoremen unions, which were very powerful from about 1920 to uh, the 50s. Uh, the garment center was quite had strong unions, and the theater district. The two of those, with containerization, the docks were gone. With the movement of uh, uh, theater of garment factories to uh, New Jersey, to, to, uh, to the South, later to the Far East, they were gone. The only remaining issue was the theater. The theater, uh, many of the McManus Club members were in strong unions in the theater, and, uh, uh, but that also was beginning to, to waver in the late 60s, early 70s. Firstly, uh, there was competition from movies, from television on the West Coast, uh, from what it had been in the 20s. Uh, and uh, 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 it was very expensive to put on a major production on Broadway. Uh, pretty soon uh, people began to say that the only decent theaters, uh, decent plays were, were uh, uh, imports from Britain or, or revivals, that there was no new theater. Uh, so, uh, and there was a proliferation in the early 70s of pornography stores uh pornography became a big thing a big with the sale of deep throat and other things it was allegedly backed by the colombo crime family so these pornography places would open around eighth avenue and began to infect even into seventh avenue and uh, there were more and more drugs and junkies and things so by the early 70s when uh, mcmanus had, uh, had formed his alliance with the, the west side kids uh, things were looking quite bad. In fact, many of the old line people in the McManus Club, he would notice that uh, his election district captains would suddenly tell them, well, we're moving to Long Island or we're moving to the suburbs of New Jersey. We can't live here anymore. Uh, and that uh, became uh, uh, basically a, a torrent by the, the uh, early 70s. So uh, uh, the question was, what was going to happen next? I mean, and most people predicted that the theater district in the early 70s ultimately would collapse. And because people wouldn't come into the theater on the West near Times Square. 
They were afraid of the, the, the pornography, the drugs, the crime. Uh, and, uh, and anyhow, it wasn't worth anything worth seeing there anyway. So a, a Redmond group led by McManus would decide that they had to stand and try to fight this. Uh, in a way, it became politically propitious. This is a propitious time for that. Because John Lindsay, who had come with great hopes and great fame, was totally uh, 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 didn't run for re-election after a second term, a disastrous second term. And the uh, candidate who came back, ironically, was the regular organization's Abe Beam, the controller, the steady, uh, uh, in a sense, Tammany Hall, uh, or previously lied with Tammany Hall, candidate. Uh, and uh, uh, people perhaps didn't have much hope for Beam, who haplessly was not able to handle the city's uh, fiscal crisis, at least vis-a-vis the rest of the country. But from Hell's Kitchen's point of view and from the McManus point of view, uh, this was a great benefit because Jimmy McManus knew Abe Beam since he was a child. His father had known him. You know, they were part of the regular organization, if you will. So for the first time in 15 or 20 years, the district leader in Hell's Kitchen, even though Tammany Hall was dead, but under the uh, had the power of an old-time district leader. He could call City Hall and could say, this is what we need. And they'd listen mm-hmm. to him. And certainly Abe Beam did listen to him. He told Abe yeah. Beam that the only way, the only way we could, we could uh, uh, revive the city, in his opinion, was We'd have to clean up Times Square, and we'd have to try to revive the theater district. And uh, therefore, Beam uh, agreed, even though he didn't have very much money because of the fiscal crisis, that they would form a mayor's midtown Times Square task force to try to stamp out the, uh, uh, the pornography, which wasn't that easy, because under Lindsay, they'd been much more civil liberties oriented. These were people who were well, well financed. Uh, tell us about the Catholic Church's role in this clean up the pornography campaign, and also tell us what role was played by rising playwrights like Ms. Wasserstein, who was uh, from Yale, as, as you were. Uh, let me just mention there was one other thing. There was a building called uh, uh, Manhattan Plaza, which is still there, uh, which uh, uh, was going broke, and they wanted to put Section 8 housing in. and. Uh, low-income people, which they, the McManuses and people in Hell's Kitchen thought would like in the area, the slum area, for the next generation. Uh, but there was an idea that they would use the Section 8 funds for uh, the arts. Jimmy McManus essentially negotiated that with uh, Beam and his deputy mayor, John Zuccotti. But the key thing was to try to clean up the streets. And that was not going to be easy. People were afraid to walk the streets. Uh, so at in in nineteen in nineteen seventy seven, uh, Cardinal Cook, Terence Cook, speaking at Holy Cross Church, the famous church of Father Duffy on Forty Second Street, called on the people of Hell's Kitchen to said we must clean up this pornography, and you should not vote for any candidate who's not pledged to that. Don't let this much continue. We've got to stop it. And that was, oh, he was closely allied, as the church always was, with Tammany Hall and with McManus. And that began an effort, which to me was one of the most interesting efforts, 
uh, which was that people would gather, they would start to picket the, the pornography establishment and tell their, their patrons that they shouldn't go in and that if they did, they were going to try to find out their, their license plates of people who came from the suburbs and call their, their, their wives. And so this became a very tough fight on the streets of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, and little by little, people responded, or at least the remnants of Hell's Kitchen responded. I was one of them. And we would, we would uh, uh, picket the, uh, the pornography areas. Later, women's groups joined. Later, they were supposedly backed by certain of the theater uh, uh, moguls. And, uh, 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 and there was an active effort to picket and to clean up the Times Square area. Now, many people throughout the city, maybe the country, were amazed. Why were people picketing in Times Square? the headquarters of pornography against pornography. Many of them didn't even believe people lived there. But these had the, imp- the, a- the uh, uh, effort of showing people throughout the city, and particularly the, the police and the, the court, that pe- there were people who were willing to stand up and fight, and that they had to try to get rid of these uh, uh, pornography establishments if they were going to revive the area. One of their major victories came... And when the mayor's task force was able to shut down a major pornography uh, uh, theater, if you will, one of the most brazen theaters, between 8th, 42nd Street and 8th and 9th Avenue. And uh, so uh, they were out. But the question was, who's next? Now, that was where there was a group of playwright, playwrights and actors and actresses from the Yale Drama School, among other places, that wanted to put on theaters, but they couldn't afford, they couldn't get backed by a major theater company. It was too expensive. So uh, a guy named Bob Moss of Playwrights Horizons had planned a a, a group at the 51st Street Y on uh, uh, 7th Avenue, and then the the, the Y said it was closing and they couldn't do their, their program, so he was very upset, but then he heard that maybe this theater on 42nd Street might be available. And they met with the owner, a man named Irving Maidman, who had once dreamed of having theaters there, uh, but had never been able to, uh, they used to call him no-hit Maidman, Maidman. And they said, uh, listen, we can put on some theater. Let us let us uh, take over your theaters. You're not going to make the money you were from the porno place. But, uh, you know, if, if we can make a go of the theater on this on 42nd Street, Later, it became under Fred Papper to get something called 42nd Street Theater Row, uh, which is still there. Uh, You know, we can uh, uh, show that they'll really, people will really come here to Hell's Kitchen. Maidman was highly skeptical, but they began. Now, Wendy Wasserstein, who was affiliated with uh, Moss, and I may have met with Maidman about it, uh, had a play that she wanted to play, that she wanted to put on. Uh, She grew up actually on the east side of Manhattan. we did a, a podcast on her uh, some months ago called Wendy and Bruce Wasserstein and the, and the growth of uh, the revival of New York in the 80s. But anyhow, one of her first plays was a play called Uncommon Women and Others, which was about uh, five gra- graduates of, of Mount Holyoke College, three or four, four or five years out of college, going over what it was like to be living in New York or what it was like to be making it. In that play, 
had a number of the major actresses of the American theater today. It had Glenn Close. It had Susie Kurtz. It had Alma Cuervo. It had Ellen Parker. It had uh, later in the in the PBS special was uh, Merle Streep. That play, among others, and there were many others, uh, Chris Durang, uh, Terrence McNally, uh, Ted Talley, uh, Albert Honorado, uh, Tony Kushner would later all have plays on 42nd Street Theater Row, which would ultimately, to some extent, make a jump to Broadway. New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan has joined us, a lawyer, a founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association, a walking tour guide leader in Manhattan. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.